When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, it's Nathan Eckersley here. Before we get into the new episode of my podcast, I do need to warn you. On this episode, you might hear me asking you to send me a message with your opinion. I love hearing your opinions, but the messages you hear me reading out on air are from the live broadcast of the podcast, which takes place on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from 3pm UK time. If you want to get involved, make sure you listen live then. Please don't try to send in any messages for this episode, as your message won't be read, but you might still be charged. Anyway, that's the legal bit done, now on to the show. The 3rd of April marks St George's Day, the feast day of England's patron saint. The tale of St George is one of strength, loyalty and courage in his defence of Christianity, and tells the story of him slaying a dragon to save a princess and free the town of Selene. In fact, the highest order of knighthood in the United Kingdom is the most noble order of the Garter, whose membership is limited to 24 knights and ladies companion, and selected entirely at the monarch's pleasure, and was founded in the name of St George for those who have made a major national contribution to public life and service. The King has appointed two new members of the Order today, in Baroness Ashton of Apolland, a former Labour Cabinet Minister and Vice, Vice President of the European Commission, and Lord Patton of Barnes, a former Conservative Cabinet Minister and the last Governor of Hong Kong. St George and St George's Day are synonymous with upholding values of selflessness, integrity, openness, honesty and leadership. Those are just some of the values in the seven principles of public life, which are found in the Ministerial Code, the rulebook which ministers of the Crown must adhere to, and the latest individual to fall foul of these standards is Dominic Raab. The former Deputy Prime Minister, Secretary of State for Justice and Lord Chancellor resigned from government on Friday after an investigation led by the highly respected barrister Adam Tolley Casey concluded that there were occasions where Dominic Robb's behaviour did con constitute bullying of junior staff and civil servants, whilst at the Ministry of Justice, as well as when he was serving as Foreign Secretary from 2019 to 2021 and as Brexit Secretary in 2018. But he did not go as far as to call the former Deputy Prime Minister a bully. 
The full report into Dominic Raab's conduct found that he had met, quote, a description of bullying. And the findings of bullying included Rob being, quote, persistently aggressive in meetings, exhibiting intimidating behaviour, and describing work as, quote, useless and woeful. Well, following his resignation, Dominic Robb spoke to the press in which he condemned the report and rejected its findings, despite resigning because of it. So I want to be clear, I'm a big fan of the British Civil Service. I've trained as a Foreign Office lawyer for six years. I'm just telling you what I see, which if the bar, the threshold for bullying is so lowered uh, that hurt feelings, irrespective of the objectively justifiable nature of my or any other minister's actions, uh, if, if, if that's the case, where does it end? And I think there'll be a lot of people now who be very nervous looking over their shoulder in meetings about what they say. And, and particularly, uh, at its best, the civil service operates very effectively. Uh, but where it underperforms, you often get this sort of cultural passive-aggressive, just computer says no. Mm. If you try and push on that now, the risk is you'll get a bullying claim. And I think that will have a chilling effect. And uh, the risk is that whether it's small boats, uh, uh, getting the backlogs down in the courts or in the NHS, driving human rights reform, it doesn't really matter whether you're on the left or the right. The risk is that actually we can't deliver what the British people elect us to deliver. I'm no fan of Dominic Robb, and it is a damning inflection, a reflection on our political culture that someone like him should have made it to such a high position as Deputy Prime Minister, as well as Lord High Chancellor of Great Britain. An office which is largely ceremonial today, but is older and technically more senior than Prime Minister. Rob should have been sacked and never seen ministerial office again after the absolutely shambolic disaster of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. His actions as Foreign Secretary, or lack thereof in this case, diminished the credibility of the United Kingdom on the world stage and arguably contributed to giving Vladimir Putin the excuse he needed to launch his illegal and barbaric invasion of Ukraine, because the West was disunited and Rob was on his sun lounger, and let's not forget, quote, the sea was closed. The bullying report into Dominic Rob has uncovered a story that when he was foreign secretary, he offered Gibraltar, a British overseas territory, as a training base for Spanish soldiers as a concession for a post-Brexit trade deal, which was a huge breach of his mandate, and a move which Gibraltarians would have vehemently opposed. Even as Brexit secretary, Rob weakened the UK's hand in negotiations by publicly stating that he underestimated the amount of trade between Dover and Calais, and offered an extension on the UK's withdrawal from the EU, rather than actually find a workable solution to the Northern Ireland border. Rob's departure is welcome, and should have happened much sooner. However, I firmly disagree with how he has had to leave government. Rob is absolutely right in the clip we just played about this report, in that it does lower the threshold for bullying and sets a very dangerous precedent. Now, there are three extracts from the report I want to focus on, which I think illustrates his point. The first is, and I quote, the Deputy Prime Minister sometimes takes a strong view that officials should have been prepared in advance to answer his questions at a meeting. Okay, so if you are the Prime Minister, a Deputy Prime Minister of a G7 country, which is the sixth largest economy in the world, time is not always going to be on your side, and it is not unreasonable to expect your advisers to be able to answer your questions quickly and accurately. Okay, the second point. 
The Deputy Prime Minister made a point of requiring a meeting with a policy official for the sole purpose of criticising them for their failure to deliver a submission on time and without having requested an, in advance any extension. Again, it's not uncommon in any workplace for there to be a meeting between a member of staff and their boss to address the quality of the work being produced. And if that is considered bullying, then how would the report consider meetings between pupils and teachers in schools to talk about work? The third and final point I want to raise is this. Quote, there was an occasion where the Deputy Prime Minister referred to, quote, obstructiveness on the part of the relevant team. And he held the view that there was what he regarded as a, quote, cultural resistance within the Ministry of Justice to his reforms. Okay. The civil service is there to carry out the policy objectives of the elected government of the day. And there are a number of instances in the report which state that civil servants were refusing to fulfil Rob's request. And therefore, I can understand him getting frustrated and curt with some of them. There were other allegations of bullying in, report, in this report which were upheld and which Rob himself has admitted and apologised for, and which should be called out. However, prior to the report's publication, there were news reports and news stories that he'd sworn and shouted at staff and even thrown tomatoes at them, which this report has found absolutely no evidence for, as well as refuted the accusation that he had misused his power. But the fact that these claims were made so boldly and dominated the headlines reflects the worrying precedent and, quote, cultural resistance, which Rob has spoken about. The same principles can be applied to Priti Patel when she faced bullying allegations during her tenure as Home Secretary. She was accused of very similar things as Dominic Raab was, such as being too demanding and short-tempered. The report into Patel even criticised civil servants for not carrying out her requests. In reality, I would argue that she was the one being bullied, particularly by the media, in a number of misogynistic and even racist articles. She spoke about these attacks in the House of Commons in June 2020, following a grossly offensive cartoon The Guardian published of her. This is what she told MPs. But I'm really saddened that the Honourable Lady has effectively said that this government doesn't understand um, racial inequality. Well, on that basis, Madam Deputy Speaker, it must have been a very different Home Secretary who, as a child, was frequently called a packy in the playground. A very different Home Secretary who was racially abused in the streets, or even advised to drop her surname and use her husband's in order to advance her career. A different Home Secretary, recently characterised, if Madam Deputy Speaker I can say so, in the Guardian newspaper as a fat cow with a ring through its nose, something that was not only racist but offensive, both culturally and religiously. The Labour Party have been condemning Dominic Raab's behaviour. However, they should be reminded of the parable, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. When Gordon Brown was Prime Minister, the allegations of bullying against him were so extensive that civil servants and staff were anonymously calling the National Bullying Helpline to report his behaviour. Since the 2019 general election, there have been eight Labour MPs suspended because of allegations of racism, inappropriate behaviour and misconduct, of which two have had to resign their seats because of sexual misconduct allegations. One of the suspended MPs, Nick Brown, who is one of Labour's longest serving MPs, has been rarely seen publicly since his suspension in September 2022. And just today, 
veteran Labour MP and Jeremy Corbyn's Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott was suspended from the party and had the whip removed following a letter she wrote to The Observer responding to an opinion piece on racism from earlier in the week. In her letter, Abbott essentially established a hierarchy of racism by saying that Jewish, traveller and Irish people do not suffer racism, but rather face prejudice similar to that redhead's face for having ginger hair. And as if that wasn't disgusting enough, she doubled down in the letter by claiming that white people were never enslaved during the colonial era, ignoring the white slave trade of the Roman, Ottoman and Spanish empires just to name a few. Abbott offered an utterly pathetic defence of the letter by saying that the paper printed, quote, an initial draft. Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer was quick to suspend her, but has not publicly commented yet. The downfall of Dominic Raab is long overdue, but it happened for the wrong reasons. He was brought down by a culture in government that seems opposed to hard and high quality work. Civil servants are seemingly working with an agenda which flies in the face of the founding principles of the civil service, an institution which is respected and replicated around the world for its neutrality. Our politics is better for Dominic Robb's departure. However, our government is left significantly poorer. Well, later in the show, we will be looking at the coronation and the place of the monarchy around the world and whether or not the British monarchy should still rule in foreign countries. So I would love to hear from you on that and our main topic, which is, of course, Dominic Robb's resignation and standards in public life. So please do get in touch and let me know your thoughts. You can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, are standards in public life unrealistically high? To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply at 07807 183 538. Email us station at wizardradio.com and all of the contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.com. We'll be back after this. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back. Let's hear what you've got to say. And our first message of the day comes from Josh. Josh says, I often think that we hold MPs and ministers to unrealistic standards, standards that most normal people would never meet in day-to-day life. Yet people act outraged when MPs and ministers behave the same way that we all do. It's actually bizarre. When it comes to these allegations against Dominic Raab in particular, I think that if any of us were in the types of high-stress situations that ministers find themselves in every single day, we would deal with the stress far worse than he has. We need to be realistic about the stress that people like Rob are put under and how they need to behave to get the job done. Well, thank you for that message, Josh. And I completely agree with you. I think the the way in which we regard our politicians and people in public life, we, we hold them to such an unrealistic standard and such an unachievable standard as well, that just the most minor infraction, just the most simple misstep can, can simply lead to them having to lose their job and sometimes lose the, lose the whip in Parliament, be suspended from their parties 
And it's just ridiculous, the levels of, I, I would argue it's faux outrage, this this almost pearl clutching at the, the way in which we look at how our politicians behave. And in fact, there's another uh, MP at the moment who I, th I think we need to point out who's facing similar allegations of bullying. And that is Sir Alok Sharma. So Sir Alok Sharma, uh, he was a business secretary in Boris Johnson's government and then moved on to be the president of the COP26 UN Climate Change Summit. And uh, he, he, to all intents and purposes, he did a, a very good job as COP26 president. He managed to get a, a pretty solid agreement reached between all member states, all those countries that were present. Did a very good job. But during that role, he's being uh, investigated for bullying some of his junior staff. And one of the main accusations that's been levelled at Sir Alok is the fact that he would call some of his staff over the phone, just give them a phone call, unannounced, and not schedule calls in a calendar, or a, a shared database that everyone would see, or a shared timetable. Well, I'm sorry, but if, if you're organising a major United Nations environmental climate change conference, if you are the head of that institution, you are responsible for that. You, you know, you're, you're putting this agenda together, you're planning the event, of course you're going to be making phone calls. Of course, you're, uh, as the, the president of COP26, you're going to be phoning your junior ministers, perhaps unannounced, if, for example, uh, you'd uh, arranged an event in a particular space, it had been moved without, without you knowing, you called your, your uh, junior staff to ask them what's going on. That is not unreasonable. F phoning people out of the blue is not unreasonable. And the fact that not scheduling a phone call is now suddenly seeming to be a bullying accusation is just absolutely ludicrous. And in, in some way, with this Dominic Robb story, the thing that an annoys me about it is the fact that we, we kind of have the wrong martyr for this, this problem. As I said in my opening remarks, Dominic Robb should have been sacked a very long time ago. He should never, ever have reached the height of Deputy Prime Minister. You know, it's his track record as Brexit Secretary when he uh, said he'd significantly underestimated the amount of trade that crosses between Dover and Calais. That, that was an immediate red flag. So the fact that he made it to Foreign Secretary, one of the great offices of state after that, well, that, that was just uh, political patronage from Boris Johnson. But to make it to deputy prime minister after the just abysmal attempt at evacuating from Afghanistan was just shameful. And sadly, he's going to be the, the figurehead of this sort of campaign to tackle these so-called bullying allegations and uh, ch changing the, the way we view standards in public life. And so thank you for that message, Josh. And I, I agree. These are such high stakes positions. Uh, you know, the, the, the United Kingdom, it's a G7 country. It's the sixth largest economy on the planet. Of course, the, they are high pressured jobs, especially if you are foreign secretary or deputy prime minister, or if you're Alok Sharma running the UN COP26 summit. You know, of course, there might be times when you just lose your temper at something or you get angry. These things do not constitute bullying. And yes, of course, there were some instances, as the report found, where Dominic Robb's behaviour had fallen short. And, you know, we must call that out. Where, where bullying does take place, we absolutely need to condemn that. But I think he is right in saying that we are, by having him essentially forced to resign, because he said if the report did find any allegations, then he would re 
he would have to leave his position. The fact that he's had to resign because of such a low threshold sets a very, very dangerous precedent. And I think he is absolutely right in his interviews when he said that. So thank you for that message, Josh. Our next message comes from Ilan, who says, I'm outraged at Diane Abbott's comments. She needs to have the whip removed immediately because this isn't even the first time that she has proved that she is not fit for office. However, I think what this weekend proves beyond anything else is how biased the news is. On Friday, the news was obsessed with Dominic Robb's resignation and it has sparked this whole debate about bullying at work. By contrast, Diane Abbott literally tried to create a hierarchy of racism and discrimination and beyond a simple news article, the news seems relatively unbothered. A lot of people think we need a new government. I think we need a new media because the double standard on display right now is actually unacceptable. The only bullies here are the news media, who are obsessed with taking down the Tories, but let Labour get away with basically excusing murder. Well, thank you for that message, Ilan. And again, I completely agree with you on that. The double standard that's been created around this is is, is breathtaking hypocrisy. Absolutely staggering. And the way that this st story with Diane Abbott has just been left almost untouched because... Dominic Robb was dominating the news for a, a bullying report that we all knew was coming. We all knew there were allegations in there. It had all been reported previously. And yet Diane Abbott, as you quite rightly say, she was creating a hierarchy of racism. She was saying that the experiences of Jewish people, of Irish people, traveler communities, the, the experiences of racism that they have felt or not racism. No, it's, it's fine. They're just facing a bit of prejudice. It's no different to uh, redheads getting teased for the colour of their, their hair for being ginger. That is inexcusable. It is absolutely shameful that she would even think that might be an acceptable thing to say, let alone have it published in a major nationally syndi syndicated newspaper. So... Sir Keir Starmer was absolutely right to suspend her from the Labour Party. He has removed the, the whip alongside that, and his, his action on that is very good. And whilst I do have a lot of criticism for Keir Starmer, as regular listeners know, I, I have to give him a, a lot of credit for the work he has done on trying to purge anti-Semitism from the Labour Party. He's taken a zero-tolerance approach to it. And in, the, there were so many problems created within the Jeremy Corbyn leadership of the Labour Party that, you know, it, it's not going to be abolished overnight. We have to be realistic. The, those issues within the Labour Party are going to take time to deal with. But he has done a very good job in reforming the party's processes, creating new disciplinary approaches and having this zero tolerance attitude to racism and to anti-Semitism is very good. And you know, full credit to Keir Starmer on that. And so it was great of him to act so quickly in removing the whip, in suspending her from the party. But he, so far, he's been silent on the issue. We, we've not had a statement from his office. He's not spoken to the press about it. No, no uh, member of the Labour leadership, the Shadow Cabinet, Deputy Leader Angela Rayner, absolutely nothing from them as, as far as I've, I've seen so, uh, so far today on this. And so it's, it's absolutely right that she be called out for it, that she be suspended. There will be an investigation, of course, but this point about the media as well is so vital. And I, I guess this is something I, I try to do on this show, to try and present all sides of, or as many sides of the debate as possible, because you're, you're right, there is this huge double standard. It, the, and we, we discussed it a bit last week about the BBC, but so much of the legacy media, the, the, the mainstream media, to use that overused phrase, you know, there, there is a bias in that. There. there is a huge degree of 
taking a, an editorial position on just condemning conservatives for simply looking the wrong way when cr crossing a road. But yet Labour have been basically left uh, unopposed when there are a number of issues there. And some of the things that Labour MPs have been suspended for over the, ever, well, ever since the 2019 general election are just appalling. I mean, what one MP was uh, suspended for uh, racist comments to a, a Chinese uh, journalist as well, a, a journalist of Chinese heritage. Uh, and ethnicity, again, suspended. Uh, again, very little was done about that. So I think he's still suspended. But again, there was a big sort of furore. We move on. Uh, Nick Brown, who I mentioned before, he was suspended following allegations of misconduct that were just that. So there was nothing elaborated on. There's a, an investigation into his uh, conduct and those allegations of bullying and misconduct. But he's not been seen publicly since September 2022. So we... We really do need to call out these uh, awful, awful instances of misconduct, of bullying, of inappropriate behaviour where we see them. And our media classes are not doing that. The, the news channels are only focusing on the actions of the government simply because I, I would argue there is an anti-conservative bias within many of our media organisations. But thank you for that message, Ilan. And it is a very good point that you make about the way in which this Diane Abbott story has been covered in comparison to Dominic Raab, who we, we all knew about the allegations against her. So thank you. Our next message comes from Ariel, who says, Dominic Raab made his own bed in this case by saying that if the report showed any evidence of bullying, he would resign. Ever since the report came out, Dominic Raab and Jacob Rees-Mogg have been slamming the civil service for being, quote, snowflakes. Well, if he feels this way, then shouldn't the outcome have been obvious long before the report came out? There might be an issue with the civil service. That's a debate for a different day. But I think we need to have a zero tolerance policy on ministers who, who abuse their power and try to intimidate people, which is seemingly what Dominic Raab has been doing as long as he's been a minister. That's the difference between Sir Alok Sharma phoning people out of the blue and Dominic Raab shouting at people and raising his hands. Raab has been using intimidation tactics and we must send a loud message that this isn't acceptable behaviour. Well, thank you for that message, Ariel. And uh, the... You're right on the point about snowflakes, and I, I believe that there is something of a snowflake culture within the civil service and within some of our institutions of government. But as for Dominic Raab's behaviour, again, the report was very specific in stating that despite the news reports of him throwing tomatoes or shouting and swearing at stuff, that there wasn't any substantial evidence of that. And so... The report did actually refute those allegations, as well as the allegation as well that there had been a misuse of power. However, the main criticism of Rob in the report, and which is ultimately what brought him down, is this sense of intimidation. And this, is, this links to the story about Gibraltar, because the, the report found that Dominic Rob, when he was foreign secretary, was intimidating the, uh, or using intimidatory behaviour to pressure the British ambassador in Spain to offer the the Spanish government some concessions on Gibraltar to potentially have Spanish boots on the ground in Gibraltar, which would have been a huge breach of the, the desires of Gibraltarians, would have flown in the face of what, what it means to be a British overseas territory. And it w was just completely the wrong move and far beyond his remit. And in the end, he actually used his power to... Uh, essentially di discharge the uh, British ambassador to Spain of his duties and bring in a new individual to take on that mandate. The argument there was that, that it wasn't so much an abuse of power or a misuse of power, but it was going beyond his mandate. And the, 
even though it's a, a technicality, it's very, it's very specific wording, the fact that it doesn't go as far as to say that he abused his power is a, a distinct point. And this is what I mean when I say that whilst there are definitely a number of overinflated allegations and very loose interpretations of what we would consider bullying, there were clear cases of it. And particularly with Gibraltar, that was one of the things that really brought him down. But thank you for that message, uh, Ariel. And I agree, there is a distinction between Dominic Raab, Alok Sharma, but there were definitely cases of bullying for Raab. So thank you. And a reminder that to get involved, you can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Radio. You can vote in our poll. Question of the day is, are standards in public life unrealistically high? To vote on that poll, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost and the standard network rate supply at 07807 183538. Email us station at wizardradio.com and all of our contact details can be found on the website at www.wizardradio.com. We'll be back right after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. Let's check in with the results so far on this week's poll. The question of the day is, are standards in public life unrealistically high? Well, 38% of you say yes, they are, but 62% of you say no, they are not. Well, please do vote in the poll if you haven't already. To vote, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. And please do keep your messages coming through. A reminder that all of our contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.com. And we will be looking at the monarchy's place ruling foreign countries shortly. So let's take some more of your messages on Dominic Raab and standards in public life. And our next message comes from David, who says, Listening to how you describe Dominic Raab's behaviour, Nathan, there is no doubt in my mind that he is a bully. Bullies are people who walk around the playground acting like they are the most important and trying to pull people down by intimidating them verbally or physically. I can imagine exactly what happened here. This is somebody who walked around the office as if he is the most important person. How dare you look at him wrong or not address him exactly how he wants to. People like this have no role in the modern workplace. There is a difference between providing feedback and being intimidating. And the fact that Dominic Raab can't even identify his own toxic behaviour and is victimising himself shows how you shows you just how bad he is. Well, thank you for that message, David. And there are certainly cases in the report, as I've said, where there are clear instances of bullying. And I mentioned the example of the uh, ambassador to Spain over Gibraltar. But there is one very important point in the report, which I want to read out because it, it sums up the approach Raab has taken in his time in government and uh, re- reflects the broader consensus around the allegations that were made. So Adam Tolley Casey, the barrister who uh, was investigating Raab and wrote the report, he said that uh, Mr. Raab, quote, did not intend by the conduct described to upset or humiliate nor did he target anyone for a specific type of treatment. 
So much of this is unintended. You know, I'm I'm not saying I'm not defending Robin in this case. I'm, I'm not offering a position on him either way. I, my broad, broad argument on this is about how we're defining bullying, what constitutes bullying. But the fact that uh, Adam Tolley, Casey, the barrister, he's saying that much of this was not intentional. The vast majority of it was not deliberately going out to intimidate or harass a, an individual or a, a, a junior civil servant or member of staff. The, the fact that it, some of it is it just happened unintentionally or so it was certainly misinterpreted, which is uh, which is a key factor in the report as well. A lot of it was misinterpreted behaviour that that appeared like bullying to those coming forward with the with the complaints, and so that that's why I think we need to really reassess how we're viewing uh, people who hold these positions. And as as we were saying before, as as well. It, you know, in, in response to some of the earlier messages, like from Josh, you know that if you're the deputy prime minister of the United Kingdom, it's an incredibly high, high-ranking um, high job, a very highly pressured job, as well as uh, justice secretary as well. You know, being responsible for the entire criminal justice system of the United Kingdom, and we know how many issues there are within the criminal justice system at, at the moment, and it's not an easy task to rectify those problems. In a position like that, there will be occasions where you do perhaps lose your temper, or perhaps people you, you do pull people up on poor work, and that that's one of the reasons why I've, I've flagged in my opening remarks about the the line in the report, which was saying that uh, quote the deputy prime minister made a point of requiring a meeting with a policy official for the sole purpose of criticising them for their failure to deliver a submission on time and without having requested in advance any extension. Again, that happens in so many workplaces in a wide variety of different fields. The, the fact that if there is substandard work or if work is submitted late, that does have an impact on the business. It has an impact on the organisation. And it happens in every walk of life that sometimes uh, people are pulled up on low, lower quality of work or for late submissions. That is not unreasonable. But thank you for that message, David. And, you know, I... I, I fully take your point that there are instances where he was a bully. Some of his behaviour can seem bullying, but I, I don't think that he has actually been a bully as such. And I don't think the report reflects that either whilst identifying certain cases. But thank you for that message, David. And our next message comes from Ashley, who says, I don't think Dominic Robb should, should have resigned. I think he should have been sacked. And he needs to have the whip taken away from him too. So he is no longer a Conservative MP. In the report, it said that Dominic Raab had the highest standards of his staff and he expected people to meet his standards. Well, we the public have high standards of MPs because they are public servants, and Dominic Raab fell far below those standards. He may have had his own standards that he expected his staff to meet, but he did not meet our standards of him, and for that he should not be in any position of power. The British public has made it clear how we expect to be treated, and people in power are now no are now longer immune, no longer immune from those rules. Well, thank you for that message, Ashley. And I agree that Dominic Robb should have been sacked, just not over this. He should have been sacked over Afghanistan, and actually, well, that he shouldn't have made it to a position of foreign secretary where he should have overseen the calamity that was Afghanistan. He should have been sacked after his comments as Brexit secretary, underestimating trade between Dover and Calais. But that that's a separate issue. The, I, I don't think Rob should have had to go because of uh, the, this issue of, of bullying, because I, I, I don't believe that Dominic Rob 
has actually been a bully in this case. I don't think the report reflects that. It simply shows that there were in occasions of uh, poor, poor conduct on his part and some intimidatory behaviour, and that some of those allegations were just misinterpreting his behaviour and his high expectations. And he should have high expectations. As I say, he was the Deputy Prime Minister. He was the Lord High Chancellor of Great Britain, two of the most important positions in the country. And of course, if you are in that position, you should have high expectations of your staff. You should have high expectations of the work they are producing and uh, being able to provide that, that work to, to the press as well is a reflection on him as an individual, as the holder of those high offices. But I do take your point that, you know, that we, we, we should expect high, uh, high standards from our ministers and those in public life. But at what point do we have almost too high a set of standards that we hold them to? Because as, as one of the messages earlier said, you know, the, the standards that MPs, peers, ministers are expected to reach are just simply unachievable. We're, we're expecting them to be saints. We have to, we're expecting them to be perfect constantly all the time. But we're all human. Humans make mistakes. We're, 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 we are not perfect, unfortunately. But f fundamentally, I, I don't see that uh, Dominic Robb's behaviour was bullying. I've, I certainly think his standards were rightly high. But I, it, it is clear from reading the reports that there are occasions where it can be seen as bullying, you know, especially if you're criticizing an employee for the quality of their work. There is a way to do it. There's a way to go about it. And you, you can be some kinder, more courteous about it. But I think he went on the opposite side of the spectrum to that. He was perhaps belittling, belittling in some cases. But, you know, I fully accept that point. So thank you for that message. Ashley. We're going to move away from Dominic Robb's resignation now to look at the coronation of their majesties King Charles III and Queen Camilla, because whilst they are going to be formally invested as King and Queen of the United Kingdom, they're also going to be crowned as King and Queen of 14 other realms and 14 British overseas territories. The monarchy has a tremendous amount of clout around the world in representing the UK on the world stage. However, it is also an important institution for the other places where King Charles will be crowned in just a fortnight's time. The most notable of the King's realms and territories are Australia, Canada and New Zealand, each major world powers in their own right. Canada is a G7 member state alongside the UK, and Australia is in the G20 with Canada and the UK as well. The Five Eyes Defence and Intelligence Partnership consists of the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, as well as the United States. So there are major links with the monarchy, and which monarchy enables, that bind these great powers together. As Brexit was being pursued by the UK, there was one school of thought which promoted the idea of CANZUC, an alliance of Canada, New Zealand, Australia and the UK, which essentially bound them into being one superstate. Proponents of CANZUC envisioned free movement of people, free trade and defence partnerships, as well as shared currency, language, government and values, in a federal structure similar to the EU. Hypothetically, if CANZUC were to happen, it would make up 2% of the world's population, 5% of global defence spending, 12% of the Earth's landmass, and perhaps most importantly, 11% of global wealth. Kanzuk would be a serious competitor to the US, the EU, and China. These other countries have flirted with republicanism in the past, Australia more so than Canada and New Zealand. In fact, Australia's Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is an avowed Republican and has said that if he wins a second term in the next Australian elections, scheduled for 2025, 
he will hold a referendum on whether to abolish the monarchy. Australia previously held a referendum on abolishing the monarchy in 1995, of which only 45% of voters supported becoming a republic. But listen to what Alessandro Rossini, an Australian student from the Australian Monarchist League, told the morning news show today about the place of monarchy in his country. Well, I am a constitutional monarchist and I'm a proud constitutional monarchist. Um, and I say that both as a young Australian and also as someone of a strong multicultural background given my Greek and Italian descent. I can vividly remember my grandparents who left uh, Greece coming to Australia speaking about why they picked our country, because it's stable, because it's prosperous and because uh, it is a better system of government. Uh, we've attributed the monarchy in Australia to a stable period. They remember the Queen's early reign uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and they are so grateful and we are so grateful for the opportunity to come here and to live in a stable country because of our system of constitutional Does monarchy. that stability, that prosperity change though in the event of a republic? Well, potentially. I mean, look at France at the moment. We've seen uh, the French president, an elected head of state, I might add as well, use an article in the French constitution uh, to essentially uh, push through a law and a piece of legislation without the parliament's consent. I mean, that's hardly democratic and they elect their president. So uh, to suggest that by somehow becoming a republic, it's going to be a more democratic system, it's quite frankly wrong. Whilst Kanzuk would never likely happen, the monarchy has brought these four nations together and also created an unlikely network of countries through the Commonwealth. Charles III is also head of the Commonwealth, a role which he takes very seriously and passionately, as did Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. In his Commonwealth Day speech in March, this is what the King told attendees at the Westminster Abbey service. In succeeding Her Majesty as head of the Commonwealth, I draw great strength from her example, together with all that I have learnt from the extraordinary people I have met throughout the Commonwealth over so many years. The Commonwealth has been a constant in my own life, and yet its diversity continues to amaze and inspire me. Its near boundless potential as a force for good in the world demands our highest ambition. Its sheer scale challenges us to unite and be bold. Whilst I firmly believe that monarchy is one of the best forms of government, the reality is that it is a rather antiquated system, and that there is definitely a case to be made for some countries to pursue republicanism. A number of Caribbean countries, most recently Barbados, have become republics since gaining independence from Britain. Jamaica is most likely the next country to become a republic, however, for a number of Caribbean and Pacific nations looking to dispense with the monarchy. This is to do with political pressures from overseas. A number of Caribbean countries have taken loans from China as part of the CCP's Belt and Road Initiative by financing major infrastructure projects. However, in doing so, those countries have entered into debt traps, making the governments of these countries beholden to China. As a means of exerting pressure and influence on those countries, China is all but forcing them to abandon the monarchy in order to remove any potential British influence which could counter China. It's widely believed that this is what happened to Barbados, as they did not hold a referendum on the issue, unlike the other countries becoming republics, and it's likely the same will happen with Jamaica. 
The Caribbean is beneficial to China geographically and economically, as the Caribbean Sea is used by China for military exercise drills, and the islands are a good trade post, which offer a gateway to the US, Canada, South America and Europe. Monarchy is going out of fashion around the world, and the House of Windsor knows it. Prince William, the heir to the throne, has admitted that there is a chance that he may not be the next head of the Commonwealth, because the role is elected, not hereditary. This does not mean that monarchy is just a relic of the empire, and needs to be replaced for the sake of modernity. Monarchy offers a stability no other system of government does. However, if the King and the Prince of Wales want to retain their leadership in the realms and territories, they will need to work very hard to keep it. So we should expect to see a significant increase in the number of international royal tours over the next few years. So let me know what you think. Should the monarchy still rule foreign countries? Is King Charles reigning in countries other than the UK simply a hangover of the British Empire? All our contact details and our poll can be found on the website at www.wizardradio.com. We'll be back just after this. Welcome back to the show. We're still discussing the monarchy ruling overseas in the other realms and territories, but please do continue to vote in our poll as well. A reminder, the question of the day is, are standards in public life unrealistically high? To vote on that poll, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. Let's go to your messages on the monarchy overseas. And our first message on this comes from Lauren, who says, I think the idea of any one country ruling over the people of any other country died with the Queen. I have friends from Australia and Canada, and they all say the same thing. They've always had an issue with the idea of the UK having any sort of link to their country, even if only ceremonially, because it's just so out of date and it reeks of empire. They didn't have as much of an issue with the Queen because they liked the Queen as a person. They wanted to make her proud and she was a great representation of their countries. But looking at the decades to come, Charles and Camilla, nor William and Kate, provide that's some representation, so they want out. I think that some of these countries should have the opportunity to have a referendum to leave the monarchy, and if they vote to leave, then that should be respected. Well, thank you for that message, Lauren, and I I fully accept the point that it is certainly an out-of-date idea to have a a head of state for uh, Australia, New Zealand, or some Pacific Islands, Caribbean, based in, in London. You know, it, it is an out-of-date idea. It's certain, it certainly does have that legacy of imperialism and the, the colonial era. However, as we heard in the clip before, you know, it, it offers a real sense of stability that no other form of government can. And I think Australia, and in particular with that clip we just heard, I think Australia is quite an interesting case study in that, because Australia over the last few years, perhaps similar to the United Kingdom, has had a real revolving door of Uh, prime ministers and different types of governments and number of elections has been inconclusive or provided some sort of uh, political uncertainty. But yet the monarchy has been that constant. It's been there to weather the storm, if you like, and to be there as a representative of that country around the world. And uh, in particular with uh, Charles III as well, and even with Queen Elizabeth II, you know, he, he is the head of state and has the position, has the ability at the request of those governments to make state visits for uh, that country to other places. So an example of that is in the 1990s, Queen Elizabeth II uh, made a, a state visit to the United States in her capacity as Queen of Canada. 
you know, she, she'd previously made state visits as Queen of the United Kingdom, but she was there specifically as Queen of Canada. And as a result of that, there were a couple of trade negotiations that happened. It sort of bro uh, broke a bit of a stalemate that was taking place between the US and Canada. And that's an example which shows the benefit of monarchy. And King Charles has only been on the throne about six months now, and it's still very early to say whether or not he's going to be a good king. At the moment, he, he certainly seems to have uh, done some positive things. And, of course, the, there are no formal powers with the king. It's all transferred to the governor general of that country, you know, to call elections or to break political stalemates, thing, things like that, to do all the ceremonial stuff. But I think by having that role of monarchy in the other realms and territories it does offer that representation and certainly for the commonwealth as well again it it creates an international standard bearer a, a real champion of those countries around the world in a way in which an elected president wouldn't do and more often than not it's often failed politicians who end up getting elected as presidents so i would much rather have that ceremonial level to uh, monarchy that perhaps uh, the detachment that we get from monarchy is actually a good thing you know it does certainly help it does certainly produce that sense of stability that i i don't think a republic necessarily does and again uh, say, take australia again as an example the fact that you might have a, a labor president but a liberal government again that creates a real sense of tension or deadlock but you know thank you for that message lauren and i fully accept that point and our final message of the day comes from Jonah, who says there are pros and cons of the monarchy and republicanism. But really, what's the alternative? The biggest republicanism in the world is the US, and look how that's going for them. They are ruled by identity politics, are in constant gridlock with a government shut down every few years, and they can't make any significant change to make sure their laws keep up with societal needs. At least with a monarchy, our Prime Minister has the unilateral ability to make quick change when they have the democratic support of the people. No matter what you think of the monarch themselves, the monarchy as a system as, as a system, is the right way to go for most countries. Canada, New Zealand and Australia should feel very lucky to have our monarchy. Well, thank you for that message, uh, Jonah. And I agree with you. I think they are exceptionally fortunate to have our monarchy. But it, we should point out it's, it's not just our monarchy you know, as well. Charles III may be the king of the United Kingdom. But he is also very distinctly king of Canada, king of New Zealand, king of Australia, uh, king of the, uh, the the Cayman Islands as well, for example, king of Belize. You, you know, he, he does have those those unique positions. And in two weeks time, when St. Edward's crown is placed on his head, that is the moment at which he will formally become the head of state of those 14 other countries. And so... You know, we, we, it is. I think it's actually important when we discuss the the role of monarchy overseas and the discussion about the realms and territories that we make that distinction because it's not just the British monarchy. It is the monarchy of Australia, the monarchy of Canada, all these other places. And that's why I found it quite saddening in the reports from Australia that they were not going to print uh, King Charles's head on the new banknotes, on new coins, because it's. it's I, I think it's ignorant of their constitutional reality. You know, he is the King of Australia. He is the head of state in Australia. And until the, there is a referendum to change that, then he, he still will be. And it's I, I would argue it's quite ignorant of their history, ignorant of their constitution and ignorant of their cultural norms to simply ignore that. But you're quite right in pointing out the situation in the United States, which at the moment is looking pretty bleak. You know, politics is in 
gridlock. Nothing works in the US. There's so much tension, so much party politicking. And we're only going to see more of that as we head into next year's presidential election. But thank you for that message, Jonah. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. But before we go, let's check in with the final poll result. A reminder, the question of the day is, are standards in public life unrealistically high? Well, 33% of you say yes, 67% of you say no. Well, thank you to everyone who's listened to this week's episode and thanks to everyone who sent in messages live. If your message wasn't read out this week, then please do try again next week. I'm Nathan Eckersley and I'll be back at the same time, same place next week. Happy St. George's Day and goodbye.